You'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can turn to Psalm chapter 6. You can find that on page 530 in the pew Bible. As Pastor Bruce said, we'll be continuing summer in the Psalms. We've done Psalms 4 and 5. Today we're going to be using the text in Psalm chapter 6. Follow along as I read Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning, and every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea, and the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for being a God who listens to our prayers who wants us to pray, who asks us to pray, and we just uh, just ask that you would work in our hearts this morning to be a people who, uh, in all times, uh, just turn to you and seek your wisdom and your guidance. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings a message this morning and help us just to learn from your word and apply it to our lives. We just thank you for, for your son and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Author and pastor Max Licato tells the following story about a parakeet named Chippy in a book that he wrote called In the Eye of the Storm. He tells the story this way, Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was perfectly perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown out. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. And so she removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it into the cage. But the phone rang. And so she turned to pick it up and she barely said hello when (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum and opened up the bag. And there was Chippy, still alive but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realizing that Chippy was was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the poor bird with hot air. Poor Chippy never saw what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. It's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest of hearts. Perhaps you're here this morning and you can relate just a little bit to Chippy. Most of us can at some point or another in our lives. One minute you're seated in familiar territory with a a song on your lips. And then 
Perhaps the pink slip comes, the rejection letter arrives, the doctor calls, the divorce papers are delivered, the check bounces, the policeman knocks on your door, and all of a sudden, you're sucked into this black cavern of doubts. You're doused with cold water of reality, and you are stung with the hot air of empty promises. Life like that, it can be so calm, and now it is so stormy. And somewhere in that storm, you lose your joy, perhaps even your song. King David, who wrote this particular psalm we're looking at here, Psalm 6, he felt like that. It seems clear that as we read this psalm, that David was experiencing some painful anguish of the soul over his sin and the suffering that he's experiencing. But here's what David shows us in this psalm. In fact, we see this by the very end of the psalm. Notice this in your notes. In those moments of painful anguish over sin and suffering, there's hope of deliverance when we turn to the Lord. There's hope of deliverance when we turn to the Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with the psalms, the psalms are not all the same. In fact, there are several different types of psalms that are even specifically written by David. There are psalms of lament over suffering. There are psalms of remorse for one's sin. There are psalms about the very silence of God where we feel like God has has not answered our prayer and even abandoned us. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of praise for who God is and what God has done for us. But when we come to Psalm 6, it seems that all of these are compressed into this one psalm. In fact, compressed is a great word picture here for Psalm 6. Picture it. It's to be pressed in. It's to be squeezed together by two forces, like two sides of a vice. And in particular, here in Psalm 6, David is being squeezed by two factors. His sense of guilt over his sin on one side, and then his sense of grief over his personal suffering on the other side. Now, I'll be the first to admit, it is hard enough to deal with one of these. But when both of these forces come together such as guilt over sin and grief over suffering, that's really difficult to deal with. It's almost like a a double blow. It's like a hard jab to the face and and a punch to the gut. And it's really, really difficult when those two punches never seem to stop. It knocks the hope out of you. And eventually it feels like a knockout blow in life. And that's when... Perhaps, like David, we are motivated then to cry out to the Lord, such as David did here in verse 3. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? It's a triple blow. David feels the, the painful anguish of his sin, the painful anguish of his suffering, and now on top of that, he feels the silence of his God. But that's when David turns to the Lord for help. And by the end of the psalm, what we see is that his hope is restored. As David would later write in Psalm 30, verse 5, 
He says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So let's unpack this psalm here, Psalm 6, and learn from David. And what we see here is, number one, in God's discipline, cry for God's mercy. In the midst of God's discipline, cry for the mercy of God. David is suffering. And so he does what we have seen him do in every psalm so far. He brings it to God and he cries out for his mercy. Notice it in verses 1 through 3. David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Now, Psalm 6 is the prayer of a man who, we could say it this way, is in the septic tank of sin as he pours out his heart to God. In fact, Ed Stetzer, who is a pastor and researcher, he writes of the time that his family moved from New York City to the state of Florida. And they lived in a house at that time that his grandfather owned. But because the house was in a rural area, it wasn't serviced by the city sewer system. And so that meant they had a septic tank. The septic tank system worked fine most of the time, but occasionally there's always problems with it. On one such occasion, Ed's grandfather would do what any old and wise man would do. He asked Ed to meet him in the backyard. He'd bring a metal bar to pry open the lid, and he'd bring a shovel to pry out whatever was stuck in there. One day, his grandpa thought it would be funny to act like he was going to push Ed into the septic tank. And it was funny, at least until he lost his balance. And before he knew it, he was standing knee-deep in sewage. And that's a pretty good picture of the situation that David finds himself in right here in Psalm 6. So how do you pray to God when you're in the middle of the septic tank? Well, like David, you pray with honesty. You are honest before God about your situation you find yourself in. Notice this. First of all, David is honest about his sin. Up until now, what's rather interesting, David's complaint has been mainly against his enemies. But most of Psalm 6 dwells on the extreme discipline David is experiencing from his God. What's noteworthy is that David attributes his severe trial to the corrective and disciplinary actions of God. He definitely feels like he is the subject, as he writes here, of God's angry rebuke and of God's wrathful discipline in his life. Now, this adds a rather crucial dimension to what David writes here in Psalm 6. Yes, David was the victim, as we have seen even in Psalms 3, 4, and 5, and now 6, and they, all these psalms kind of build on one another, and, and they come to a crescendo, as we'll see in Psalm 7. And so what we see here in the context of all four of these psalms is that David was the victim of his son's betrayal, Absalom, as well as all those who joined forces against him as God's anointed king over Israel. In other words, as we have seen in these last two psalms, and it really begins in Psalm 3, is that David was the victim of his enemies' deception and of their slander, and they were out to get him and attack him. 
But David also knew within his soul that at the very root of the problem was his own sin. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, in eventual the murder of her husband Uriah. It's true. David's enemies were thoroughly evil. We've seen that in these last two Psalms. And we have seen that they deserve God's judgment because of their wickedness. They would face themselves the consequences for their actions. But what God was doing here in David's life, he is actually using their evil to rebuke David and to discipline David for his own sinfulness. And so although David experienced repentance of his sin, he experienced the forgiveness of God for his sin, the consequences of his actions were now being played out in his family and even in his kingdom. This is the context of the situation that David now finds himself in here in Psalm 6. And notice this. David doesn't deny that he deserves God's rebuke and discipline for his sin. He knows, he knows within his heart that he has sinned against God and that he is now in the septic tank, so to speak, because of his actions. But sometimes our painful anguish is not due to sin. Sometimes you actually may feel like Job, a man who is suffering even though he is righteous or blameless before God. In fact, sometimes God puts his children through the ringer, not because they have sinned, but simply because God loves you and God wants you to grow. And yes, God may send difficulty into your life as a means of discipline because of your sin, and we should not minimize that. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're listen, God may also use suffering as a means of discipline to foster spiritual maturity and holiness in our own lives. What we see here in this psalm is David is in painful anguish. He's in distress. And in his particular case, it is over his sin. And God is using his enemies to discipline him, to correct him, to rebuke him. And he's honest before God about that. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He brings it before God. But number two, we also see then that David is honest about his need. Although God is the one who has brought such anguish into his life, David doesn't run away from God in his moment of discipline. Rather, he runs to God. And what does David ask? He cries out in verses 1 through 2, Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Now, while David makes no explicit confession of sin in this psalm, like he does in Psalm 32 and even in Psalm 51, nonetheless, his passionate cry for grace or mercy here acknowledges God's just rebuke in redemptive discipline. In fact, although God's discipline feels so harsh to David that God seems to be angry with him, he doesn't ask God to stop rebuking him and to stop disciplining him. 
Why? Because David knows that he deserves what's happening. He also knows, though, that I need mercy. And God, I need your mercy if I'm going to survive this. He can't hold on much longer. And so he cries out in verses 2 through 3, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And so what David does, he comes before the Lord in prayer. And he is honest, yes, about his sin. He doesn't deny it, but he is honest before God about his need. He knows he needs mercy from God. Why? Because his bones, he says, are in agony. His soul, he says, is in anguish. There's nothing left to hurt. He's in pain within and also without. All he can do is to cry out, How long, O Lord, how long? Now, let's be honest. This is probably one of our persistent problems with God. Is his ways in how he deals with his children. We have a calendar. And we have figured out about how long we can hold out under God's discipline. And yet somehow, God always seems to allow our urgent deadline to pass. He doesn't act on our time schedule according to our calendar. So David's how long? Man, we can apply that to our own lives, our own situations, where we perhaps cry out, how long, God, will you allow this to go on in my life? God, why don't you intervene and give me some relief here? Because I can't handle this anymore. Why are you waiting so long? And again, let's be honest. Our troubles are as much in those moments with God as they are with our circumstances. So what can we do when we're under God's discipline? You can pray what David prayed. Right here in verse where he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord. But you, O Lord, how long? Listen, you can go to the God of discipline and cry out for mercy. And isn't it interesting that three times David uses God's personal name here, Lord. David knows God. And so he turns to his God in faith and cries out for divine mercy in the midst of his divine discipline. It's clear that this time of discipline was also a time of distress in his life. So how should we respond? David teaches us, number two, to plead then for God's love. To plead for God's love in your distress. What does David pray? The start of verse 4 tells us. David Cries out, turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. In his distress, David is basically saying to God, turn to me and save my life. Rescue me from my distress. David indicates what he's feeling when he says, turn, O Lord. In other words, what he feels is that God has somehow turned away from him or was even set against him, or even had abandoned him 
that God's presence has been withdrawn from him. And so now he's pleading with God to turn back to him and rescue him from his painful anguish. But what's interesting about this prayer is the basis on which David makes it. In the middle of his distress, David argues his case before God. He tells God in the form of a prayer, God, here's why you should turn back to me. Here's why you should give me relief in my distress. Here's why you should be merciful to me. And he lays out three arguments before God. And there's great lessons in these arguments for us to learn. Notice the first argument of David. David pleads on the basis of the God that I have. The God I have. In verse 2, David asked God for mercy because his bones are in agony and his soul is in anguish. But notice the basis he pleads with God to rescue him in the rest of verse 4. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. What David's doing, this is an argument that rests on the very character of God. God's steadfast love. That word, that phrase, steadfast love, it is a kind of love that pledges to never let go of his people. And yet that's exactly how David felt in this situation. That God has turned against him. That God has abandoned him. That God is not present with him. And yet David knows this is how he feels, but he knows the truth. And he bases his prayer, his argument on that truth, on the very character of God and his steadfast love to never abandon God's people. You see, David doesn't build an argument based on his own character. He builds an argument based on God's unchanging character and his covenant promise to love his people. We might paraphrase David's prayer as, Save me, for you have pledged yourself to deal faithfully and loyally with me, and I am holding you, Lord, to your word. It's an argument that rests on God's promise to never abandon his people, which ultimately rests on his character. And sometimes, listen, that is your only hope in moments of distress. Simply what God has said about himself and about what he will do on behalf of those who know him. Man, this suggests to us here, like David, how massively important it is to know our God, to know the character of our God, to know what he is like as he is revealed in his word. This is why it's so important to be in the Word and be reading the Word because this is where we learn about the God that we claim to know and to serve. This is the God we are pleading to and praying to in moments like this in our painful anguish. And so we base our prayers not on ourselves, but on the character of God in the promises that he has made in his word. The second argument here, notice it, David pleads on the basis of the praise I give. David argues in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now this word remembrance, it 
means a whole lot more than just having data in your memory, like gigabytes on a flash drive. It has a sense of recounting the things God has done for the whole purpose of expressing praise in worship. And this word sheol, it's simply a reference to the realm of the dead. It's it's an Old Testament word. Therefore, when David is dead and gone from the land of the living, his argument is this. How will he be able to tell others the great and mighty things that God has done? It's as if David is saying to God, Lord, if I die, if my enemies get me, if you do not deliver me, there will be one less person on this earth to sing praises to you. For I won't be able to sing your praises among your people. Lord, dead people don't get up and sing from the grave. Now, this particular argument may be the most persuasive of the three arguments that David uses. Why? Because God is passionate for his own glory. David knows that he faces a very real possibility of his life ending in tragedy at the hands of his enemies instead of testimony. And so it's not surprising now that David is pleading on behalf of God for more time to proclaim God's name. Instead of thinking about his own name, instead of thinking about his own legacy, his own comforts even, his own whatever, David is intent on praising God's name. He's intent on giving glory to God in worship. And with this argument, David is making an assumption here that is worthy of our consideration. When David says to God, if I end up in Sheol, that is a realm of the dead, God, I can't sing your praises anymore. He's assuming something with that. And what he's assuming is this, that the whole purpose of his life is what? To praise God. To give glory to God with his life. Now that's significant because if it's true for David, that means it's true for you and it's true for me. David's prayer here tells us that your whole reason for existence, my whole reason for still being alive on this earth is not to get a superb education, is not to excel in sports, is not even to make a great living, is not even to advance rapidly in your profession, but it is simply to praise God and to give him glory. What David prays here in verse 5, let me tell you, it will expose you. Because how you answer the question, what's wrong with death, will do it. See, most of the time when we think about death, it's always about us. But David, when it comes to death, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about God won't get praise from me on this earth. The only correct answer here is because I wouldn't be able to lift my voice in praising my Redeemer, because that's my whole reason for existence. And that is David's argument here before God. God, relieve me of my painful anguish. Don't let my enemies get to me to the point of death, because then I cannot give you praise while I'm still here on this earth. 
But he's not finished with this case before God. He still has one last argument that he brings before the throne of God. Notice it here, his third argument. David pleads on the basis of the misery I know. David ends his plea by simply reminding God, God, I'm exhausted and I am miserable. Have you been there? If not, you will be. Some point in life, everyone is. And so David gives this vivid description of his misery in verses 6 through 7. Look at it. I love the honesty of David here. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. In fact, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I mean, you can feel the anguish in those words. And you see the toll of David's distress that it has taken on his life. The moaning, he says, the tears, the weeping, the lack of sleep. Listen, in other words, David is crying out to God and he is saying, I am emotionally and physically shot, Lord. I can't go on. Now, why does David rehearse all this before God in prayer? I mean, does God need this information from David? As if God somehow doesn't already know what David is going through, what he is feeling emotionally and physically. Well, you have to go back to assumptions. What is David assuming about his God here? Listen, again, he's making another assumption in this prayer, and this time it is about the mercy of God. In other words, David is assuming that all of this, that is what he's feeling, what he's going through, his painful anguish, and what he rehearses before God, all of this, you know what? It matters to my God. My God cares about this. And that he will then, somehow, God will be touched with compassion over David's condition. In other words, David assumes that our mercy, our misery, in other words, arouses God's mercy. As one author put it, a prayer like this assumes that the Father is like Jesus, always going around being moved with compassion. And so if there's a turning point in the psalm, this is it. It's when David turned to the Lord and simply cried out for help. And so let us learn from David here. Listen, in times of victory, by all means, Call upon the Lord and praise Him. In times of defeat, call upon the Lord and ask for His help. In times of temptation, call upon the Lord and seek His strength. In times of distress, call upon the Lord and plead for His grace and mercy. David shows us that God is our pathway through the darkness, through our painful anguish, and that He is also our hope of deliverance in life. And this brings us to the last lesson we learned from David. That in the hope of deliverance, rest in God's favor or God's blessing. Because both words mean the same thing. You can feel the change in David's heart as he moves now from his distress to the hope of his deliverance. David now prays in verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. These are his enemies. 
These are the ones who are slandering him. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And so suddenly, David shifts from a visceral sense of defeat to this vigorous dismissal of his enemies. One moment he is weeping, and the next moment he is boldly warning the wicked as the king of Israel, get out of here. And so what he's doing, he asserts his power as king, and he sends the evil opposition packing. He switches from despair to defiance in a blink of an eye. And you may be wondering, why? What happened here in David's circumstances? Why the sudden change in his outlook, in his perspective on life? And quite simply, it is this. God's heard his prayer. God has heard his prayer. David's sudden confidence here, although his circumstances have not changed, knowing that the Lord has heard his prayer changes everything. And it's this confidence that brings a sense of relief and hope to his anguished soul. The sudden change of confidence comes not because his situation has changed. It hasn't. But because the Lord has heard his cry for mercy. In fact, David repeats this game-changing assertion three times here in these verses for emphasis He says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David stood up once he knew God had heard him and accepted him, even though his enemies had not yet been turned back. Oftentimes, see, we're waiting for the circumstances to change. Because that's what we're focused on before we change our perspective, before our heart changes. But that's not the case here with David. You see, David, he moves from distress to this joy and this hope in his deliverance, not because his circumstances changed, but because his perspective did. It's because he knows, he has the confidence that God has heard his cry. And it's that confidence, that faith in his God that God will answer his prayer now changes everything for David. Again, nothing seems to have changed except the fact that God has heard his cry for mercy. In fact, John Calvin insisted that we take notice of David's confidence and learn from him when he writes, and I quote, from this we are taught that there is nothing in the whole world, whatever it may be, and whatever opposition it may make to us, which we may not despise if we are fully persuaded of our being beloved by God. Another author adds this, this sudden Access of confidence is the most telling evidence of an answered touch from God. It has been the experience of many Christians over the years that this confidence in the Lord, this hope of deliverance comes about through prayer. And normally through the process of prayer. Again, what we have seen, and even though we didn't look at Psalm 3, 
It begins in Psalm 3. You see it in Psalm 4, 5, and now we're here in Psalm 6. All of these are prayers before God. And what they are, they're morning prayers and evening prayers. So David, is, he's starting his day with prayer. He's going before God. He's given his everything to God. He's, he's laying bare his soul before God. And he starts in the morning and he ends in the evening with it. And it's through this process of prayer that his whole, everything about him begins to change. His joy is restored. Not because the circumstances have changed, but because he has now changed. We know that the Lord not only listens, but he acts. We know that even when God might be the source of our suffering, he is also the solution to our suffering. And David shows us that in those moments of painful anguish over our sin and suffering, that there is hope of deliverance when we turn to the Lord in prayer. And so again, let me encourage you, especially in this day and age of our technology, it's so easy to turn to social media first. And that's where we lay it out for the whole world to see. And I'm not saying there's not a place and time to, to share, all, share things with friends, trusted friends. But before we turn there, let us turn to our Lord. In the morning and in the evening, David does. And he lays it out there. He is honest before God. Now, as we come to the end here and as we prepare to participate in communion, it's interesting to note the parallel between David and his anguish, his suffering, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, notice this in your notes, the painful anguish of our Savior. Jesus actually used this psalm, Psalm 6, to describe his path to the cross. That is, Jesus quotes this psalm of David. You see, David's inner torment points forward to Christ's inner torment as our Savior. In fact, you go to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And so it's not difficult to see how Jesus identified with these prayers of David. That is, these prayers in Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Especially these prayers leading up to the cross. We can almost imagine... Jesus' troubled soul taking comfort in David's dependence on God's deliverance. And so these are the psalms that Jesus likely prayed in the morning as he faced another busy day of ministry with his disciples and even another day of hostility with the Pharisees and scribes. These are the psalms that Jesus prayed at night before drifting off to sleep And probably even these psalms were what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he goes to the cross. So it's no surprise that as Jesus faced the cross, he takes the words of David on his lips when he says his soul is in anguish 
In fact, Jesus, in his own words, says in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What hour? The hour of the cross. And yet Jesus, as he makes his way to the cross, he does so that we might receive the mercy and the love and the hope that David sings about in these psalms. And so let us stop here. Let us ask ourselves, where do we go for mercy when we don't deserve? Where do we go for steadfast love when all else fails? Where do we go for hope of deliverance in times of distress? And may I encourage us, listen, we go to the cross of Christ. That's where we go. We go to the cross of Christ We bow our knees at the foot of the cross and we look up to a Savior who knows our suffering. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of David here in Psalm 6. When sin and suffering tempt us to doubt you, we turn to you in hope of deliverance. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we choose to believe you are present even when it seems you are silent. We choose to believe in your Son and to celebrate the hope that we have in his resurrection. We give you the praise and the glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to participate in communion, if you are here this morning and you have confessed that Jesus Christ is your Lord by trusting him for your salvation and identifying with him in baptism and committing to his body and membership of a local church, then then we here at LifeBridge, we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to watch what we're going to do. And when you watch, I pray that you will see a picture of God's love for you as the church eats and drinks of these symbols of grace, the bread and the juice. The bread and juice simply represent the body and the blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. And and these elements here, they remind us of who our Lord is. They remind us of what he has done for us. They remind us of even what God, through Jesus Christ, is still doing for us, and yet will do for us when he returns. And so, as the music begins to play... You're invited to stand and walk to one of these four stations throughout the auditorium and take one of the cups of juice, a piece of bread, and take it back to your seat and to participate where you're seated at. If you're here and you physically are unable to stand and walk, just wait till the end and we can bring the cup and the bread to you right where you're seated at. Just raise your hand and we'll see you. At this time, the music is going to play and you're welcome to participate.